Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Walking through the dark house, Officer Charles Bullock took care not to slip on the newspapers scattered over the floor or bump into the piles of junk on the table. The homeowners had clearly skipped out on spring cleaning. His nose crinkled at the scent of old baked beans, cresting over in the Houston summer heat. At least it was better than the smell of dead bodies. After all, that was the most likely end to a welfare check on a couple this age. But the house seemed to fit the other likely scenario. The semi-retired Rogers went on vacation and forgot to tell their nosy nephew. Inspecting the kitchen, Officer Bullock clocked the unused bleach on the counter and the pile of cans stacked on the dirty, cold-spot fridge. He opened it. The fridge was packed with fresh meat. Practically an entire pig. Officer Bullock figured the couple must have done their own butchering. The cuts weren't standard and the meat was left unwrapped, its juices oozing over the plastic shelves. Mildly disgusted, Bullock started closing the door until he spotted the vegetable drawer. Through the clear glass front, two human eyes stared up at him. He'd found the Rogers. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories. Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our one-episode Father's Day special on the murders of Frederick and Edwina Rogers. Authorities believe they were killed on Father's Day 1965, but investigation of the brutal double homicide hit a wrench when the biggest lead they had turned out to be another missing person. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Today's episode is a little different. We know very little about the victims. And the person who had the most information about them mysteriously vanished. Despite that, 
law enforcement believes they actually know the answer to this cold case. However, they've never been able to put anyone behind bars or determine a criminal motive. With so many gaps in the story, the crimes become a springboard for rumors and conspiracy theories. So today, our team of voice actors will handle the details we can't fully confirm, while Carter and I stick to the facts. That should help everyone keep track. So let's go back a few days before Father's Day, 1965. Frederick and Edwina Rogers had been married for just shy of 50 years. But unlike many elderly couples, they weren't empty nesters. Their son, 43-year-old Charles, lived with them at 1815 Driscoll Street. The home was a cute yellow craftsman in the respectable Cherryhurst suburb of Houston. There, the elderly couple had regular visits from Edwina's nephew, Marvin Martin. Marvin, the other day, one of the ladies from Stanley was telling me all about this fabulous new degreaser. Makes your parts good as new. It's $10. A real racket. I know, but those River Oak wives drop tens like they drop a nickel. Anyway, want to buy a bottle? One minute ago, you said it was a racket. Doesn't mean I'm not on the hook to sell ten more bottles by July. Five seventy-five. Family discount. Ah, forget soap. That's your wife's business. Better to put your money on Saint of Liberty, Marvin. Damn good horse. He'll put his money where he wants. And where he can get a family discount. Speaking of, how's Charles? That good for nothing. He's busy. I don't know why you keep asking. I tell you, I just went and saw Uncle Edwin down in Chiro. <laughs> you told me last week. Always nice to see family. Marvin. I was just saying, it's nice to see you. You know, she doesn't like to talk about the boy. I think I will buy some of that degreaser. Five seventy-five, you said? That's the family discount. How'd you like today's sermon? Not long after his visit in June 1965, Marvin called to check on his aunt and uncle, but no one picked up. After a few more fruitless attempts, Marvin finally got a call. From Hazel Keddy, one of Edwina's fellow salespeople at Stanley Home Products. Hazel couldn't get in touch with Edwina either, which was odd. Edwina always enjoyed selling cleaning products, even if she didn't enjoy using them. Marvin grew worried. His aunt and uncle were 72 and 81, and his cousin wasn't exactly reliable. So, after work on June 23, 1965, he dropped by the Rogers' house. No one answered the door. Concerned, he walked to the nearest payphone. Can I get a welfare check at 1815 Driscoll Avenue? My Aunt Ebby and Uncle Frederick, they, um, there might have been an accident. Has anyone else tried to contact them? My aunt's co-worker. She got nothing. My cousin lives with them, but the doors are all locked. And, and, Uncle, have you spoken to your cousin? I can't get into the house. I'm at a payphone. Sir, we'd recommend you try your cousin. He doesn't have his own phone. I don't know if he's even in the country right now. This isn't a crank call if that's what you're getting at. They're 72 and 81. Hmm. 
I'll dispatch the nearest officers. Can you please repeat the address? By the time Marvin Martin got back to the house, two police officers had already arrived. Officer Charles Bullock, a 30-year-old Air Force veteran and father of two, and Officer Leo Barda, another experienced patrolman. As Marvin filled them in, the officers clocked the newspapers on the lawn, the stuffed mailbox and the closed blinds, all bad signs. Marvin was right to come up from San Jacinto County to check in, even if it was almost an hour away. The officers asked Marvin to be patient while they tried the doors and windows, locked, locked, and locked. In the fading evening light, Bullock and Barta hopped the chain-link fence into the backyard, where they found a door cracked open. Bullock tried to get in, but something blocked the door from the other side. Pushing hard, the two men forced it open. The door had been jammed with flower pots, and that was by no means the only clutter in the dark room. The officers turned on their flashlights and began exploring. On the first floor, they found a fan plugged in, running, and cold. If the Rogers had gone on vacation, they hadn't been gone for long, or the 1960s-era fan would have overheated. On the second floor, they found one of the bedrooms locked from the inside. Much like the front door, no one had answered their knocks. The officers decided to finish sweeping the house before busting open the door. Back downstairs, Bullock and Barta took a deeper look through the kitchen. It held more signs someone had been there recently. They'd left dishes in the sink, newspapers on the floor, and perishable food sitting out, well, everywhere. It was so messy, they couldn't tell if the crowbar they found was a sign of foul play or simply misplaced. The same went for a knife wrapped in a napkin and left on top of the stove. With all the food left out, Bullock wondered what they could possibly be keeping in the refrigerator. He opened the door. Moments later, Bullock was back at the patrol car, frantically radioing the police department. Reporting on that welfare check with Officer Barda, I opened the fridge and I saw eyes. Beg pardon, officer. You're reporting ice in an ice box? Eyes, you idiot. Brown eyes in a woman's head. You hear me? Damn. I mean, yes, I hear you. Damn is right. It's brutal. Someone decapitated her, then stuffed her face in the vegetable drawer. The rest of her body's in pieces in the fridge. Flagging down the chief now. Officer, are you and your partner safe? Confirmed. We're outside the house. Bart is with the nephew who reported it. We thought it was a pig at first. I, I can't believe we thought it was a pig. The meat, the body, it was bloodless. They carved her up and drained her like big game. Sorry, this one gets me. Some do and some don't. This one does. Officer Bullock, I... Hi, hi, Chief. Yeah, you need to go to Cherryhurst. It's bad. Sorry, Officer Bullock, the Chief's asked me to confirm. The house is secured? It's... Oh, hell. The upstairs bedroom. After reporting the crime, Bullock and Barta re-entered the house, guns at the ready. They headed toward the locked room upstairs and kicked down the door. The room was empty. 
It was set up like a college dorm or bachelor studio. Hot plate, coffee pot, cigarettes, and evidence of a recent meal. The room was also full of musical instruments and ham radio supplies. It looked like someone had just been there. Someone dangerous. Among the items, they uncovered a razor, a saw, and a Colt 22 missing one bullet. While it seemed like a proverbial smoking gun, someone had wiped it clear of fingerprints, and then they disappeared. Unless, of course, they were waiting right outside. This wasn't the first dismembered body the Houston PD had come across that year. They had two other active unsolved dismemberment cases. One of them was from San Jacinto County, where Marvin Martin said he was from. Coming up, the police interview their first suspect, Marvin Martin. Hi, it's Carter, and I'm very excited to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, ParCast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on the popular Colts podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash Colts. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more. Exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. If you're a true crime fan, this book is a must read. So don't wait. There are limited copies available. Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. On June 23, 1965, Houston police discovered the body of 72-year-old Edwina Rogers. They suspected her nephew, Marvin Martin, might know more than he let on. But they couldn't be sure until they saw how he reacted to seeing Edwina's mutilated body. Hey, Marvin... Can you come inside with me? Sure, but... uh, They aren't home, are they? I'll level with you. I need you to identify a body. Can you do that for me? Oh, God. Uh, Aunt Ebby? I have to warn you. This isn't, uh, conventional. Why don't you sit on that chair right there? Right by the fridge. If you need a glass of water, you can just get it from the tap. What are they keeping in there? Would you have a look at the vegetable drawer, Mr. Martin? 
I thought you said I needed to look at a body. Holy mother of Mary! Aunt Ebby! Aunt Ebby! Thanks for the help, Marvin. Barta, he's not the guy. Though they cleared him of suspicion, police kept Marvin Martin at the crime scene. He'd need to talk to the homicide department after they had a chance for their own investigation. It was probably better for Marvin to stay put. His aunt was killed and butchered, and his uncle and cousin were still missing. I can't imagine anyone would be in a good frame of mind after learning their aunt died the way she did. The crime scene was so disturbing, even police officers struggled to believe it was real. Hearing the reports, some of the officers declared it a prank, until they caught the deadly serious expression on the police chief's face. The chief came to the crime scene personally, along with most of the officers on duty that night, and medical examiner Dr. Robert Bucklin, who took on the gruesome task of emptying the fridge. At least bodies on ice don't smell so bad. <laughs> I'm sure that's why the perp did it. For my nose. Imagine if every killer did its the courtesy. We'd save a fortune on Vic's Vapo. <sighs> Is that a grocery bag? Yeah, but I doubt it's... Holy hell. Is that another head? Confirmed. And it's personal. Look. The eyes. They're gouged out like the end of Oedipus. What's Oedipus? Didn't you have to read it in school? I wasn't much of a homework guy. In the story, the guy screws his mom, kills his dad, has no idea these people are his parents. When he realizes, he gouges his own eyes out. You think that happened here? Mm, too early to say. Better get the nephew back in here. We need him to ID. Poor guy. This makes me want to gouge my own eyes out. After Dr. Buckland found the second head in the fridge, Marvin Martin identified it as his uncle, Frederick Rogers. Dr. Buckland soon realized Frederick's other body parts were mixed in with his wife's. Some of them were already in the same body bag. Due to the mutilation, it was nearly impossible to tell which parts belonged to each person. Though the detectives didn't have much time to dwell on it, they worked overnight, moving forward with the case. Dr. Buckland's cursory examination of the cuts led the Houston PD to rule out the serial killer theory. Frederick and Edwida's bodies didn't match the previous torso murder victims. But Frederick's body did provide a few new leads. His injuries were more brutal than his wife's suggesting he may have been the main target. And police had a good inkling why. Frederick was a former bookie for the local mob. His murder may have been a hit. However, all evidence for this theory, beyond the fact that Frederick ran mafia horse bets, is unverified speculation. For now, the police put the mob theory in their back pocket. They needed to gather more information before pursuing anything. The chief assigned two homicide detectives to the case, James Polk and Charles Smith. Polk and Smith searched the house and began interviewing the neighbors who'd shown up to Galk. This was an exciting event for the sleepy Houston suburb. 
One local dad even brought a video camera so he could share the crime scene with his kids who were on a trip out of town. The neighbors described Frederick and Edwina as your typical elderly suburban couple. Edwina was a devout churchgoer, and Fred loved feeding squirrels in the front yard. But when they asked about Charles, the conversation took a turn. One of the neighbors said that in seven years of friendship, Edwina had never once mentioned having a son, much less one who lived with her. As far as she knew, Charles Rogers didn't exist. At this point, it's important to note that almost everything we know about Charles Rogers comes from rumor and hearsay. Though we can say it's extremely odd that a mother would neglect to mention her child, especially one who lived with her. With this new information in hand, Detectives Polk and Smith interviewed Marvin Martin, the nephew who'd first told the police about Charles. My uncle was getting up there in years. He wasn't all there all the time, if you catch my meaning. And my aunt was a poor housekeeper. She spent most of her time at her job. What did your cousin Charles think of that? (sighs) Never saw him. That's not true. I saw him as kids, but not at the house. He left for work early and came home late. Sold water purifiers, I think. Before that, he was in the Navy. But you had a good relationship with your aunt and uncle. Sure. I always felt bad with Charles and the tragedy with their girl. Tragedy? My cousin Betty died in a car accident in the 20s. Uncle Frederick didn't drive, um, so they had a friend driving them in from San Antonio, I think. The car flipped and Betty hit her head. She was only 10. Uh, I'm very sorry. That must have been hard. Eh, I didn't really know her. But with Charles being such a recluse, I kind of felt it was my duty to check on Aunt Ebby, you know? Of course, of course. Thank you again for all your time. The detectives had hoped the neighbor who didn't know Charles existed was just the oblivious type. But based on Marvin Martin's vague account, it seemed more likely that Charles was the mysterious type. Each lead felt weaker than the last. The pilot's license found in Charles' bedroom led them to the nearest private airport, where the owner confirmed that Charles had briefly kept a plane in the hangar. Allegedly, he used it to travel on business, selling water purifiers. But no water purification company in Houston had any record of Charles. Interviews with the Rogers' maid, their neighbors, and Edwina's co-workers and fellow church members didn't go much better. Over and over, officers asked the same question. What do you know about Charles Rogers? I worked for them six years, and she never let me clean his room. Kept it locked tight, real oddball. The Rogers boy? Oh yeah, I saw him, sharp dresser. He'd go around the block taking long walks alone, guess he had the time on his hands. Charles hadn't spoken to her in five years. Abby slipped him notes under the bedroom door. Guy used to dig through my garbage for old newspapers. Must have been hurting for cash. My kid says he's a creep. After dozens of interviews, Detectives Polk and Smith weren't any closer to tracking down Charles Rogers. Then, another officer approached them from the forgery department. Officer Harmon, good to see you. I heard I should talk to you about Edwina Harmon Rogers. 
That's uh, a tough case. You saw the photos, I'm sure. And the son's MIA. Everyone in town calls him a freak. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. So you think he was a killer? Or a lowlife like his dad? I think he was my cousin. Oh, Edwina Harmon Rogers. <sighs> Look, I'm not your white whale. Just here to say what I know, in case it helps. I saw Charles on the street last year, and he didn't even acknowledge me. Looked right through me. Last time I saw him before that, mm, was a good ten years. Complete hermit. Is he close to anyone in your family? A lot of the family hasn't even met him. But I wanted you to know, wherever Charles is, my bet is he doesn't want to be found. By anyone. By Thursday, June 24th, Charles Rogers moved from crucial lead to main suspect. However, official records were few and far between. He'd never been arrested or married. He had served in the Navy during World War II, which allowed police to find his fingerprints, social security number, and exactly one photograph. By checking the social security number, they confirmed he spent 10 years working at Shell Oil, and found another photo from his employee ID. Charles quit Shell in 1957, and there's no record of his employment after that, though the timing of his exit lines up with the reports of when he moved in with his parents seven years before their murders. Beyond that, there's practically no confirmable information on Charles Rogers. I doubt that he existed at all if I didn't have his social security number right in front of me. The Rogers' neighbor really had a point. Charles wasn't someone you'd find if you weren't looking. And the stakes for finding him only got higher on Friday, June 25th, after Dr. Robert Buckland performed the full autopsy. It may have been the most difficult autopsy of his career. In order to determine how Frederick and Edwina died... He first had to sort through their jumbled body parts and piece them together like a puzzle. Based on the cuts, Dr. Buckland noted that the killer had a basic knowledge of anatomy and had drained both bodies of blood before putting them in the refrigerator. As for the cause of death, Hedwina was initially shot in the head but survived for 20 minutes before her death and dismemberment. Frederick was beaten to death, likely while asleep or lying down. He died of a skull fracture before his killers scalped and dismembered him. After their deaths, the killer removed Frederick's eyes and mutilated both Frederick and Edwina's genitals. Dr. Buckland couldn't confirm what tools were used for the dismemberment, but the hacksaw and straight razor found in Charles Rogers' bedroom seemed likely. Meanwhile, a police chemist identified a bloodied hammer as the bludgeoning weapon. Specifically, the investigators believed the killer attacked the Rogers with the backside of the hammer. Partway through the autopsy, Dr. Buckland came to a dark realization. Certain body parts were missing. Accounting for the fact that the bodies were found in the fridge, the investigators were forced to consider cannibalism. Why Charles Rogers might have tried to eat his own parents was anyone's guess, but the latest development in the case made it feel more and more like a Greek tragedy and even harder to believe. 
especially because the killer was so organized. Investigators turned up blood spatter in later searches of the house, but it was clear someone had cleaned up the floors, the clawfoot tub, and even started some laundry. Most critically, they were organized enough to remove all fingerprints from the hammer, the saw, and the gun. There wasn't a firearms registry in 1965, so without fingerprints, police had no way of uncovering who the gun belonged to. Though it was found in Charles' room, it could have belonged to Frederick, or literally anyone. Detective Polk puzzled over these questions and the missing organs. But Friday, June 25th, brought another break in the case. Polk, we had some complaints about the sewers in Cherryhurst. Turns out they found the organs. Buckland already ID'd a lung. He thinks there's intestines and kidneys, too. The rest of the Rogers. Mm, I'd reckon the killer put the internal organs down the toilet. Lungs, kidneys, it's all soft tissues. We stopped him in the act. Soft tissues are the easiest to put down a drain. So they went first. I wish we didn't know that. Yeah, the point is, he wasn't eating them. He was storing them. (laughs) And he wasn't done. Within a few days of discovering Frederick and Edwina Rogers' bodies, authorities were confident that their son Charles killed them. But accusing Charles of the double homicide was a slippery slope. Before long, he was accused of another murder, that of U.S. President John F. Kennedy. Coming up, Charles Rogers becomes the center of a conspiracy theory. Now back to the story. By the end of the day on Friday, June 25th, Houston law enforcement was in a full-on manhunt for Charles Rogers. They issued an all-points bulletin seeking the skinny 5'7 balding man and made a public appeal for tips. He'd disappear for weeks. Canada, Cuba, Mars, who knows? Charles acted like a roommate, not a son. Only slept there, never pulled his weight. He paid off the mortgage just so they couldn't kick him out. Smart cookie. Texas A&M, Houston College, kid had some kind of nuclear physics degree. He answered the phone on Tuesday, didn't say who he was, never did, just that Ebby was indisposed. Then again, it could have been Frederick. Sadly, none of the tips brought law enforcement any closer to Charles Rogers. They were still looking for him on July 1st, when Charles' parents, Frederick and Edwina, were buried in a shared casket under a single headstone on the Rogers family plot. Charles didn't show up for the funeral. With the Rogers dead and buried, interest in the case dwindled, and the police faced a sad reality. One more week and we close this one. Give me more time. We're close. Polk, we can't even confirm what day they died. We can. It was Sunday. You have a suspect in custody? I have a newspaper, the Houston Post, from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. No one got the paper after Sunday. So the killer flew the coop. Sunday was Father's Day. Man killed his father on Father's Day. I mean, if that's not all the evidence, you need to keep going. (sighs) Three weeks. Don't waste it. 
In most crime stories, missing people are victims. But in this case, all evidence points to the missing person being a killer on the lam. That was until Charles Rogers came back. In early July 1965, officers arrested a man on a charge of disturbing the peace. It was all standard procedure, but then the man gave his name, Charles Rogers. They had their man in jail. Officers raced to formally ID him. They had Charles' fingerprints from the Navy, so it was an easy test. One, the suspect failed. He wasn't a killer, just a liar. He quickly admitted he'd given a fake name on a lark. Sadly, this red herring left locals and law enforcement back where they'd been since June 25th, searching for Charles Rogers. He was a big question mark. And the longer he stayed missing, the more people speculated about his motives. Maybe it was post-war PTSD. Maybe it was a failed relationship. Maybe he just hated seismology. What he hated was his mom's mess. We have the receipts right here. Charles kept a running tab at the dry cleaners. It wasn't the mess, it was the shame. One word, obligation. He was an only child, caring for his aging parents. When he couldn't care for them anymore, he killed them. Even when he grew up, they made him give them all his money, act like their servant. Wasn't healthy. He never forgave his father for that car accident, blamed him for losing his sister. He attacked Frederick once before. Abby stopped him. After 33 years, he couldn't bear to wish his dad another happy Father's Day. He snapped. Many theories zero in on the Rogers' living arrangement, which was unconventional for the time, and their socioeconomic status. Some people speculate that Charles moving back in with his parents reflected something deeply abnormal inside him, and they think that same abnormal thing led him to murder his parents. But there has to be more to the story, since so many adults successfully live with their parents today and have throughout history. Right. Another popular theory goes that the abnormal thing wasn't Charles, but his job. Some theorists suggest he was a CIA operative. And when his parents found out, he had to kill them. I know, it sounds like a pulpy spy novel. But there is some evidence to back this up. Remember, public records state Charles wasn't employed in any capacity after 1957. But he could afford nice clothes, dry cleaning, and at one point, a private plane. He had to be getting money from somewhere like a job off the books. Then there's his reputation. Everyone the police spoke to recalled Charles as a man of mystery. And most gossip does contain a grain of truth when you look at the common threads. Then there's one more piece of evidence from the Rogers house. In the fall of 1965, a group of Houston police officers took a rookie cop to the house on Driscoll Street. By now, people were saying it was haunted, so they planned to send the new guy in to investigate in the dark as some light hazing. To their surprise, the rookie cop actually found a clue. He found an elaborate ham radio antenna set up to send extra powerful signals. It matched a state-of-the-art ham radio found in the garage. Notably, this wasn't a normal ham radio setup like police previously thought. 
this antenna meant it was serious. Someone in the house was using the radio as a private line of communication. In their book, The Man on the Grassy Knoll, John R. Craig and Philip A. Rogers propose a theory on who Charles was talking to and why he killed his parents. So the mom's been listening to our kids' conversations, and on Father's Day, she talks to him about it. She's really disturbed, because she thinks that she's talking to the CIA. And she's right. When mom confronts him, he shoots her in the face to keep the secret. But she doesn't die, so he beats her up with a hammer, and then he obviously has to kill his dad, or the CIA will kill them both. They can't let anyone know Charles Rogers fired the bullet that killed President Kennedy. Remember, Oswald? didn't act alone. The book The Man on the Grassy Knoll authors Craig and Rogers use CIA involvement to explain some gaps in Charles Rogers' biography. One of the book's theories regarding Charles hinges on a photograph known as the Three Tramps image, where police officers lead three disheveled men away from the grassy knoll near Dealey Plaza. For decades, these men were unidentified, Craig and Rogers noticed a strong visual resemblance between one of the men and the Navy's headshot of Charles. And they say all three tramps were actually CIA assassins. But since the book was published, the men have been identified and none of them are Charles Rogers. It shows how much people wanted to find an answer. He was just a normal CIA operative, but he did spill some secrets to his parents so they had to die. He didn't kill JFK, but he did help kill Martin Luther King. The devil made him do it. There's no devil. The man was a psycho. It's a classic nervous breakdown. The problem is, so little is known about Charles Rogers, he can be slotted in as the villain in almost any crime story. But maybe that's the wrong way of looking at it. There's one more theory surrounding the Icebox murders, It's that Charles Rogers didn't kill his parents. He was framed. Like the other theories, it lives in the lack of evidence. No one's seen or heard from Charles Rogers since June 23, 1965. Police never tracked him down or identified a body. He may have been murdered along with his parents and simply never found. Remember the internal organs found in the sewers? Well, most of it was unidentified flesh. It was all assumed to be Frederick and Edwina, but all it really tells us is that the killer was disposing of the bodies piece by piece. And we can't forget, Charles resembled his father. The combination of genetic similarities and decomposition may have hidden the evidence in plain sight. The Father's Day timing could reflect a plan to frame Charles, or just a coincidence. As for who did it, it could have been anyone. A random serial killer, the mafia, or even the CIA. But we'll never know because in 1975, the Houston police declared Charles Rogers dead in absentia. It'd been 10 long years and he'd never tried to use his social security number, bank account, or fingerprints. The Rogers estates were divided among Edwina's nieces and nephews, In the time since the murders, one of them, Marvin Martin, switched careers to become a Baptist preacher. It seems like his entire life changed direction after losing his aunt and uncle. 
He wasn't the only one whose life was altered. Though Officer Charles Bullock became a police captain, he held reservations about opening fridges for a while. And his partner that day, Officer Leo Barda, left the field for good. Over 50 years later, the case remains well-known around Houston. For years, the crime scene photos were part of police academy training. Despite the lack of hard evidence today, it's widely believed that Charles Rogers killed and dismembered his parents. Many believe the most likely motive to be pent-up rage, especially when you consider it happened on Father's Day. The brutal patricide feels more akin to a Greek tragedy than real life, but the Houston PD determined patricide was the explanation that makes the most sense. And Charles is the only suspect they ever officially pursued, even if law enforcement never knew what he stood to gain from killing his father or mother, or horribly mutilating their bodies. Whatever may have drove him, it must have been serious, since it became his entire legacy. And in a tragic way, it became his parents' legacy. Parents take pride in the children they've raised. Father's Day celebrates that, honoring all the hard work it takes to raise a good kid. But for the Rogers, Father's Day 1965 was a day of dishonor. They became victims of tragedy and their son, the boogeyman who killed them. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the Icebox Murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found John R. Craig and Philip A. Rogers' book, The Man on the Grassy Knoll, and contemporary newspaper reporting by United Press International, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unsolved Murders is written by Maggie Admire, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Kai Jordan, Melissa Bedita, Cameron Nicod, Nazee Tarsha, and Laith Walshlager. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, it's Carter, and I'm very excited to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on the popular Colts podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. 
If you're a true crime fan, this book is a must read. So don't wait. There are limited copies available. Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Parcast.